This morning, we will continue on in Luke. We'll be in Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. We have gathered here today, as I've already prayed about, to turn our hearts toward heaven, to look to the things of the soul. All week long, we look at material things. We look at the things of the world. We look at things that are not toward heaven. Our heart is pressed towards the things of the world, but we gather together intentionally on Sunday morning with other Christians to turn our hearts toward heaven, to do, as Luke said, to exalt Jesus Christ with our voices and with our hearts and to turn our mind's eye toward heaven. We live in an excessively technological and distracted time, uh, often obsessed with material possessions and the approval of the world, and we are chaotically busy and stressed. Uh, Everybody here has more than they can do in the day, and I don't know if that's a new thing to the world, but it's definitely true of our day and age, and if you're going to live a life that has any quietness to it, you have to force it. You have to take hold of your time and quiet your soul. And so we can easily lose sight of the fact that we have a soul at all. When I start conversations with unbelievers, those that I know do not know Christ as their Savior, this is where I most often begin. I will ask them whether they think that they have a soul or not. And most people, no matter where they come from, they will say, yes, I believe that I have a soul. I believe that there's more to me than just blood and guts and what appears before you, that the sum of my parts is more than what is there. And philosophers before Darwin almost universally agreed that there was more to this world than just the material world. But Charles Darwin, and through the theory of evolution, has pressed our modern age into a radical materialism to reach a conclusion that there is nothing more than the material parts of the world, that there is no soul, there is no God, there is nothing more than what exists physically. And so I would ask you a question this morning. Why does belief in God and the soul persist in this technologically advanced age? Why are you here this morning? Why does belief in God and the soul persist? Well, I believe the answer to this is most basically that the materialistic explanation of life, that there is no soul, everything is a product of random time and chance, and we're just animals here on the earth, that that does not square with our real experience in life, that we know that there is more to us than just being a grown-up monkey or something that is materialistic only. We know that we have a soul. We understand somewhere in our conscience that there is a God. We cannot shake the inner sense that there is a God, and we cannot fully escape the haunting question of what will happen to us when we die. People very, very seldom talk about the afterlife or what will become of us when we die. But it is something that's before us often in the Bible. And we know that we should ask that question and that it should matter to us. But we shake it often and leave it behind. Often we are confronted with vague and happy assumptions all around of of good things that will happen to us when we die. But they're seldom considered, seldom put to any scrutiny or carefully looked at. And few speak directly to this enormously important topic. It's largely ignored. But as always, Jesus speaks the truth and Jesus speaks to things that matter. Jesus speaks to the most important topics and issues of our life. He reveals the truth and he calls for decision. 
by piercing the darkness of our minds with the truth of God's spirit. And so this morning we have before us a, a powerful passage, a passage that should, when we finish reading this passage, it's just, you can't not have a reaction to this passage. So let's turn to Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31, and hear Jesus and his words again. Please stand to honor the Lord as we read his word. Luke chapter, excuse me, Luke chapter 18, verses 18 through 34. I'm sorry, I'm wrong. Luke chapter 16. The wind, the wind just blows my pages all over the place. I'm going to get in here in a second. Luke 16, 19 through 31. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. And the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. And the rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, father, to send to him my to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. So what we have before us this morning uh, is an, another parable. And I'm going to talk about that for a moment here just to introduce this. But this begins with the same exact phrase as the previous parable in chapter 16, there was a rich man. It begins in the same proverbial style as so many other proverbs that we have discussed, but it is very important for me to define at this point in time, before we get into this, what I am talking about. So what is a parable? All parables fall into the same general categories, and they are real and familiar places with fictional characters used to teach spiritual realities. Okay, let me say that again. Real places and familiar places. So when you've got the sower of the seed, everybody understands what it means to have a plowed field and to cast seed on it for something to grow up and for sometimes weeds to choke it out. Everybody understands having two sons, one struggling against the other, one hating his father. These are all real and familiar places. And I want you to hear me today that the use of heaven and hell in a parable is not to say that they are not real. It's the same thing. They're real and familiar places. 
You understand what I'm saying when I say hell, and you understand generally what I'm saying when I say heaven. And this was not something unfamiliar to this time either. And so Jesus is using real and familiar places, but fictional characters to teach vitally important spiritual lessons. And so I urge you this morning, just as Jesus did with the people that heard him, to hear the warning of this parable. This is one of the most powerful warning parables in all of the Bible. And so hear the word of Jesus Christ. It has two characters in it, a rich man and a poor man. They are the central characters of this parable. And it begins with the rich man. It says, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen. Clothed in purple and fine linen. Purple, at that point in time, was extracted from the the murex mollusk. It was a big deal to find a bunch of snail shells and boil them down and create purple dye and dye something with it, but it was very unusual, and it was only available to those that were the most well-off, the most rich, and it was used for outer garments usually. Fine linen was what was used for undergarments. Again, for those that were the most well-off, had linen undergarments and purple, expensive, dyed outer garments. This guy's got great clothes, but he feasted sumptuously every day. That's some very particular language. When you feast, he has just stuff all over the table, more than you can possibly eat. I'll just throw the rest of this away, which will become important here in a little while in this story. But he feasted sumptuously. It's a very short explanation, but a comprehensive explanation of someone that lived in the ultimate luxury. This person had everything that somebody could possibly have in that day and age. All that money could buy for that period. He lived in ease. He lived in enjoyment, having more than he needed. And he lived exactly the way that countless billions of people, both then and now, wish that they could live. But it's important to look at this. Always Jesus just wakes us up and gives us a radically different perspective. If deep down in your heart, this description is exactly like you want to live, you need to listen very carefully to this sermon today and what the Lord Jesus would say to you. The next character is the poor man. In verse 20, at his gate laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores. So he is given a name. It's the only parable where any of the characters are given a name. And so that should cause us to wake up. What's, the, what's this name mean? What's the importance of this name? The name Lazarus means God has helped which is a very ironic name for a man who is incredibly poor and sick and lives his whole life homeless on the street. How could this man be helped by God? We have to keep reading and see what happens with this man. He is poor. Whereas the rich man has everything, this man has nothing. He has nothing of the wealth of the world. What all the world has to offer has passed him by. He's living on the street. He lives at the gate of the rich man. And the Greek word for gate here would connotate not a little garden gate, but a big old gate, like a palace gate or a city gate. But what we should see and what is Jesus is intentionally doing in the framing of this story is that this rich man has no excuse for not understanding what's going on with this poor man. The guy is at his gate every day when he comes in and out. And there is an important spiritual lesson for us in this. 
I do not believe that the Lord would have us to be crushed down by all the needs of every needy person in the world because it's too much for us to meet. But I tell you what you can do something about is the person that you literally trip over every single day. Someone that has, the God has brought directly into the path of your life. And you say, that person is needy. Maybe I should do something about that. And the answer is yes, you should do something about that. And when you are, have someone in your life right in front of you day after day after day that has radical need and you can do something about it and you don't do something about it, it says something about your heart. It says something dramatic about your heart. Because this guy is sick, covered with sores. Verse 21 says that the dogs would come and, and lick this man's sores in his poverty. Does that cause you to shudder and, and recoil, the idea of a dog licking someone's open sores living on the street? It, it does. But that's always the reaction. That's the regular reaction to wealthy people that live easy lives when they're confronted by radical poverty, something that they are so far away from, it just, it just makes you shudder. But so much of the world lives in radical poverty, and this was not an unusual thing for this day and age. And this man is starving. He's starving and he longs to be fed with the scraps from this man's table. And as we just looked at, did this man have scraps? How many sumptuous feasts have you ever been to where everything was eaten? I've never been to a big feast where there weren't leftovers. There was plenty left over to give to this man, but nothing was given to him. It was all thrown in the trash. And so what we have is a radical contrast. Jesus sets up a radical contrast between two characters in this parable. But as different as they were in life, they are equalized by the great equalizer of death. Death will come to us all. Every single person here will die one day. No matter how much you don't want to think about that, how much you want to push that off, you have no idea when you are going to die. Whether it's going to be by disease, by accident, or some other means, one day you will come to the end of your life. And so we're not told here how these two men died, but they both died. And in verse 22, it says that the poor man was carried by angels to Abraham's side. Your translation may say Abraham's bosom. That is the, the literal translation of it. But it is to the nearness of Abraham. And if anybody would be recognized as a person near to God in that context that Jesus was preaching, it would be Abraham. Abraham would be someone near to the Lord. And so this, this poor, unseeming, unrecognized man is received by the help of God, by the mercy of God, he has absolutely nothing to commend himself to God, but yet by faith, the Lord saves this man. And this is something important because not every parable teaches everything. To learn how it is that we come to salvation, we must look elsewhere in scripture. But we uh, understand that and believe that by the help and the mercy of God, this man is received into God's presence. And this is contrasted with the rich man, which this says went to Hades. He died and went to Hades. So in the Old Testament, Hades is sort of used as a general concept of what happens with people when they die in the afterlife, if you will. 
But in the New Testament, as, is, as are all things in the New Testament, it becomes more specific and things come into greater focus and we understand more about what God is doing. In the New Testament, the word Hades is never referred to anything other than hell. Believers, followers of Jesus Christ are never referred to as going to Hades. And so this rich man goes to hell when he dies. And a powerful and moving description is given to us of hell. It says that he is in torment by fire, that he is thirsty, that he is aware of himself. He is aware of his past life, and he is aware of Lazarus. And he says in verse 24, I am in anguish in this flame. Have mercy on me, he calls out. But what is the response to this call for mercy? In verse 25, this is the response. But Abraham says, child, remember that in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And so Abraham speaks of a great and permanent reversal that what had happened in life is now the opposite in death. The rich man had his good things in this life, but in death he has eternal punishment. The poor man receives bad things in life and in eternal life receives uh, comfort and kindness and mercy from God. We have to, we're going to spend some time talking about this because this is not a simple thing. But one of the things I want to point out right from the beginning is that this is not a new idea in Scripture. We have run over this many times already in the Gospel of Luke. In Matthew 19.30, Matthew 20.16, Mark 10.21, Luke 13.30, all say the same thing. At the end of time, the last shall be first and the first shall be last which speaks to a great reversal of things in this world. We can't just go past that and say, oh, that's interesting, it's really, that's really interesting. Next. If Jesus says something over and over and over four times and then tells a parable to further emphasize it with dramatic emotional language, we should stop and say, all right, I, we need to, I need to think about this. So if things are not going to be valued in the same way in eternity as they are valued here. I need to make sure that the way that I value things and the way that I understand things are the way that the Lord Jesus would have me to see and value things. And so part of this interpretation, we have to ask the question, does this mean that all rich people are going to hell and poor people are going to heaven? The answer is no. Not, we are not gauged by whether we are going to heaven or hell based on the amount of material wealth we have. But we have to seriously wrestle with this issue and keep going with it. So where we have some examples from church history in this that are important. Because in the early 13th century Europe, when the Roman Catholic Church had reached an outrageous point of covetousness and greed and lavish wealth, and the ministers of the priests, I should say, and the monks, largely, of the Roman Catholic Church during that period were known far and wide for their disgusting and obvious abuse of their priestly roles. They were stealing from people, doing all kinds of things very similar to what you find with the sons of Eli in, in the Old Testament. It was just a disaster, and people knew it. 
And sadly, it's part of every era. There are plenty of false ministers and false preachers in our day and age, so-called, that are full of greed and covetousness and immorality. And people look at them and they say, this is disgusting. Like this is, there's no way this person represents the God of the Bible. And so the response in that day and age largely came from two men, one called Francis of Assisi and another, uh, Dominic Guzman. And so Francis of Assisi, of course, went on to uh, found the Franciscan order of monks and Dominic Guzman, the Dominican order. And both of these were based around the idea of self-denial and living a life of voluntary poverty. For the Dominicans, they became the, the mendicant friars, which were those that went around begging. They had no source of income and begged what they needed in order to receive it and live at the lowest possible level. So their reaction to this gross abuse of wealth was to go in the complete opposite direction and live as beggars. But I believe this also misses the mark for many reasons, and we don't have time to go into all of it, but here's where I want to focus. As always, we must look at the life of Jesus Christ. When we look at the life of Jesus Christ, we do not find someone that loved or accumulated material things. Jesus did not live as a mendicant beggar. He lived a simple life, however, a very simple life that was not revolved around accumulating or seeking after material possessions. And I believe the key to understanding this is what I preached about two sermons ago, which is the parable just before this one. If you didn't have a chance to hear it, I encourage you to go back and listen because I can't rehash it all. But Luke 16, 13, just a few verses before, is the central part of that parable. And it says this, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. But you cannot serve God and money. And so the central point of that sermon is that the affections of your heart are going to be directed in one direction or the other. You will either love and pursue and seek after and long for the things of this world, or you will love and long and seek after the things of the kingdom of God. But you cannot love and long and seek after both at the same time. One master passion will win out in your life. In the rich man, it was the love of the things of this world. And he was going to have as much of it as he could possibly have. And he was devoted to it. And that's all the reward he got. The other loved the Lord and sought after him in all of his poverty and simplicity. But his love for God was real and true and genuine. And so he received the Lord by seeking after him and longing for him and loving him. And so it is, you have a choice What is going on with the material things in your life? Is your heart, is the love of your heart and the passion of your heart after seeking the things of this world that are passing and are temporary? Do you cut off and cut out godly things from your life in order to pursue more of the world? Or do you structure and shape the things of your life to serve the Lord Jesus and to seek after him, to know him? You know what you love. I believe in your heart you know what you love. You know what you want. And those that hunger and thirst for righteousness, they shall be satisfied. Those who want the things of this world often will get the good things of this world. But Jesus says often that is all that they will get. You have your reward 
and that's what you will get. But you will get no reward in the next life because of your lack of love for God. You are trading the love of God for the love of this world. And we have to take this very, very seriously. There is no great sin recorded of the rich man in this parable. What is his sin? His sin is radical worldliness and selfishness and unbelief. That's it. That's it. You could characterize that as the vast majority of people in this country. They're very self-serving, seeking after their own, searching for their own, accumulating their own, and they're selfish towards others, and they have no belief or love for God. This parable says that you will, that's all you will get in this world because of your unbelief that you will be sent to hell. Why is this? It is because of the justice of God, which we're going to talk about in just a moment. But it is a powerful warning. If you're unsettled by this passage, you're like, I'm just really uncomfortable with what I'm hearing here. There's a reason why. Jesus used these words particularly. But the opposite of this parable is also true, and we must hear this. It is an incredible encouragement to those that love Jesus and believe in his mercy and hope in Jesus Christ for life. For this man that had nothing, who gained nothing in this world, he was the lowest of the low, is welcomed into the kingdom of God and seated next to Abraham in the presence of the Lord. In due time, those of you that struggle and yet believe will find your hope fulfilled in Jesus Christ. I would like to read for us from James chapter 1, verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. And so we have two sides of a very dramatic coin here. One that believes in the Lord Jesus and accepts his mercy and grace, and one that loves the things of this world. Well, in verse 26, it carries on. So there's this reversal, but then in verse 26, it says this, And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and that none may cross from there to us. A great chasm. What is he talking about? What is, what is this picture trying to present to us? Well, it is going back to verse 24 where this man calls out, have mercy on me. But it's too late because the chasm has already been fixed. He has already been judged by God. This life is the time for decision. Now, today, since we are not guaranteed tomorrow, I want you to understand that the time that you have is now. And I'm not trying to put some weird pressure on you. It's just the truth. You know that somebody could run that red light and hit you and you'd be dead today, leaving here, if you're honest with yourself. Now is the time that you have for decision. And we pass from life unto death. The time is past. But when we die, all skepticism, doubt, and disbelief will pass away. This worldly man believed in hell the instant he entered into it. As the old English divine says, hell is nothing more than the truth known too late. Hell is nothing more than the truth known too late. Hell is justice. It is a separation, an intentional separation from a holy and a righteous God. We are all sinful people. None of us deserve to stand in the presence of a perfect God 
And if any of us went into heaven in our current state, we would take our lust and our anger and our selfishness right along with us and corrupt the beautiful place that God has made, which is called heaven. And so we cannot go there without being made perfect. But how can we possibly be made perfect? The only way is through Jesus Christ. Jesus came and died upon a cross as a atoning sacrifice, one that would stand in your place, Jesus, in the place of you, to take upon himself this torment, this anguish, this real and conscious hardship. Jesus was awake, he was alive, he was real on the cross, and he took our sins upon his own body that we might be forgiven. And he extends to us mercy and grace, free from any works and apart from any works, that today, any person here that would reach out and say, God, have mercy on me, that the Lord God will have mercy upon you today, because now is the time to call out for mercy. But once you die, there will be no crossing over to heaven. There will be no coming back in reincarnation. There will be no annihilation, which some people like to make up. Just, you just cease to exist. You're just gone like the ether. That's not what the scriptures teach. And there will be no purgatory, which is a convenient doctrine that you can try it all again and work it out later after you die. No, now is the time to work those things out. It is an unbearably terrible thought apart from the great mercy of Jesus Christ, our Lord. But he thinks of his brothers, which is right. His five brothers. Send somebody back to tell my five brothers. I want to stop and just make a note here. Do you have that passion for the salvation of your family members now? It's hard. I understand it's hard to talk to family members about things of the gospel because it's just really in your face and in your business. And a lot of times family just like, ah, this is really uncomfortable. How do I get in my family's face about eternal things? Pray about it. Seek the souls of your family members above all others because they will one day die and they will one day come under the judgment of God if they reject Jesus Christ. Let us pray for them earnestly. Let us seek them to evangelize them. And so what is Abraham's response in verse 29? They have Moses and the prophets. This means the writing of Moses, the first five books of the Bible, the prophets, which has to do with all the rest of the Old Testament, which is the constant witness of the Lord as to who he was and what the way of salvation is. From the very beginning all the way down to the time of this man dying, God has given witness as to who he is and how people might be forgiven of their sins. They have never been without excuse. Israel's problem was not a lack of information. Israel's problem was a hardness of heart that they would not believe what was said to them and they would not obey it and follow after it. And so he says, you have Moses and the prophets. The word of the Lord is enough. It is sufficient. But if they don't believe these things, as it says in verse 31, if they don't believe all these godly men and they don't believe the testimony of Jesus Christ, because it's Jesus telling this parable, and they still want more. Moses wasn't enough. The prophets weren't enough. Jesus wasn't enough. I would need one more miracle, and maybe I'll believe. But they will never believe if they do not believe in Moses, the prophets, the word of the Lord. J.C. Ryle says it so well. Great miracles will have no effect on the hearts of those who will not believe God's word. Let me say that one more time. Great miracles will have no effect on the hearts of those that will not believe God's word. 
often people say, if just one more miracle would occur, this person would believe. But the miracles of Jesus came after his teaching. They came to affirm what had already been said. Miracles never stand alone without the interpretation of God's word. The Lord God does absolutely act in supernatural ways, and we still pray for that today. But those things mean nothing apart from the context of the scriptures. And so God's word in the Bible is primary, sufficient, and powerful unto salvation. Listen to the Bible. If you would understand what God would have to say, listen to the Bible. That by the foreordained plan of God, by the unconditional mercy and love of God the Father, Jesus was sent and lived a sinless life. He laid down his life to satisfy the justice of God in your place. That by grace alone, through faith alone, that you might have peace with God. Do you believe the call of Jesus Christ? The door is open that you might be freed from the wrath that is to come. Will you believe in Jesus? I want to close this with a story, a powerful story of, of salvation that, for me, wraps together these things. It's the story of the salvation of Adoniram Judson. Adoniram Judson was born in 1788, just south of Boston. He was the son of a strict congregational minister, raised under faithful Bible teaching, incredibly academically gifted. He was, uh, made an early profession of faith, and had outward faithfulness as a teenager and growing up into his later teens. At age 16, because of his brilliance, he went on to Rhode Island College, which we know now as Brown University. And there, even at his young age, he excelled and eventually graduated as the valedictorian of his class. But it was during his time in college that he made close friends with a young man named Jacob Eames. Jacob was a fellow classmate of his, smart, witty, but an unbeliever, a deist, one that says that, yes, there's a God out there somewhere, but he has nothing to do with our personal lives. I don't believe any of the Bible. I certainly don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and any of this salvation stuff is just uh, hogwash. And Adoniram was convinced by this young man. He didn't tell his father, didn't tell his mother, but he walked away and forsook his faith in college and hid his change of heart until after graduation. And when he came home after college graduation, he broke the news to his father and his mother, and his mother wept and wept and prayed for him. This son that she had loved so much, so gifted, so talented, would turn away from the things of the Lord. And his father tried to reason with him, tried to give arguments, tried to call him back to the faith, but he was too smart for his father, and his father couldn't keep up with all the arguments that he had. And so he fled, and he went to New York City, as a prodigal son, to find his way there and forsake the faith of his mother and father. But there he did not find what he hoped for. And he lived a reckless, vagabond life until he was disgusted with himself. And he was empty of hope, disoriented, disillusioned, and began to make his way back home. And as he made his way back home, colonial America didn't have Marriott's. It was all small inns. And so he comes to this small inn. And there's only one room left in the inn. And the innkeeper says, I, I got one room left, but you're going to share a wall with a guy that's dying. And I don't know what he's got, but he's not in a good way. Adoniram doesn't care. I just want to go to bed. So he goes to bed. And as he goes to sleep, he is disturbed all night by the groaning and the gasping and the footsteps back and forth of this guy, whoever this is next door. 
He is disturbed for this man's soul and what's going to happen to him if he does die. And then he begins to be disturbed about his own soul and what's going to happen to him as he dies. And his, his thoughts begin to wander back to his father, who though he could best him in academic argument, he could not best him in the surety of his soul. His father, who knew where he was going to go when he died, but he did not. And so he eventually goes to sleep and ends up waking up late, hurries downstairs to pay his bill, and asks the innkeeper, did the guy make it? No, he died. Oh, that's too bad. What was his name? His name was Jacob Eames. The very young man that had led him away from the faith at Rhode Island College was the guy that died in the room next to him. It is one of the most radical, providential orchestrations I have ever read about in church history of the Lord working to bring someone to himself. Adoniram Judson records in his autobiography that he just could he was so thrown off for an entire day of trying to figure out what was happening here that this young man that had been so passionate about going and living the way of the world and pulling him away from his faith was the very one that he listened to suffer and die across the wall from him. And he knew, as far as any man can know, that this guy died and went to hell. And it radically changed Adoniram. He came back to the Lord. He went back to his family. He came back to the faith and dedicated himself to going and never making that mistake again. Never being ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ and allowing others to pull him away, instead going and speaking the good news of the gospel to those that need it. And Adoniram Judson ended up being the first missionary sent from the United States of America. He was sent out to Burma where he gave his life as a missionary, suffered so many hardships to bring the Burmese people the gospel of Jesus. And so it's a powerful example especially on our Sunday where we're recognizing graduates of a, of a college student, concerned, struggling with things, walking away, but then the Lord God bringing them back. I don't know where you are this morning, but I plead with you as Moses pled, as the prophets pled, as Jesus pled, so now I plead with you to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, that you might confess your sins and be forgiven and have life in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for this morning. It's a, it's a hot morning. I thank you for everybody hanging in here with us. But Lord, speak to our hearts on this day. Speak in a way that only you can. Draw those that do not yet believe you to yourself, Lord. May you save them. May today be the day of salvation. And I pray, God, that those of us that hope in you, that our hope would remain strong and firm and steadfast with our feet planted upon Jesus Christ, our rock and firm foundation. Lord, help us, guide us, give us the faith to believe your word and to live for you today. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.